Good morning, guys. So I got to start just by echoing uh, Stephen's words to all of you moms and those who are playing moms' roles in people's lives. You guys are a massive blessing to us. So happy Mother's Day to all of you guys. Um, Mother's Day always comes on a Sunday, so I get to say that every year. So uh, it's great to just uh, thank God for all of you and all that you do. So thank you. Um, We're going to do something a little different today. If this is your first time with us or maybe your first time logging on to watch us online or something like that, you may, be, uh, you may experience something during the sermon time that is a little different than what you usually experience um, because today is going to be really introduction to an entirely new series. We're going to be laying a bunch of groundwork and that's going to involve telling some stories and helping you sort of get some understanding of where we're going to be going over the next several weeks and even months. So um, I want to just prepare you for that. Don't be shocked when I don't ask you to open your Bible until I'm almost done. And don't get that look on your face that you get when I first tell you to open your Bible and I've already been speaking for 30 minutes and you're like, oh dear God, what's going to happen? So don't worry about all of that. Um, But I want to begin by just addressing something that you all know but maybe never think about. And that is this. There is one highly compelling story that resonates for people in all cultures, across all generations, uh, and everywhere and over all time. And because we have this one very compelling story to tell that everyone seems to relate to and everyone seems to have ring true in their heart. What we have done from culture to culture and time to time is that we have looked for new ways to tell the same story over and over again. Probably many of your favorite movies over the decades have been a retelling of essentially the same theme, the same story, and you can kind of predict how it goes. Let me give you a couple of examples. Once upon a time, in a land very far away, there was a beautiful and wonderful young lady who was a princess. She was the model of goodness. She was the model of decency. She was the model of moral purity. She was this wonderful young lady. And one day, there was a wicked temptress who stalked her, uh, schemed to take advantage of her, and transformed herself to look like a beautiful a woman who came to offer her help. And she brought with her a basket of fruit. And she offered her a beautiful piece of fruit. And she said, take this fruit and eat it. You'll love it. And the beautiful young maiden took the fruit and she ate it. And she fell suddenly under a curse and into a deep sleep. And she slept and slept and slept and slept without any ability whatsoever to break the curse, until finally, a wonderful prince came along. And his love for her, symbolized in a kiss, 
broke the curse and gave her new life. Have you heard that story before? You've heard that story, right? Let me give you another one. Once upon a time in a land equally far away, there was a young prince And as he was raised in wealth and opulence with servants and all of the people taking care of him, his heart grew very, very proud and he became very arrogant and he became very self-centered. And one day, uh, that pride and arrogance and self-centeredness finally showed itself in the fact that he rejected, turned away, and and was actually mean and spiteful toward a person who was in very serious need. And as a result, he was placed under a curse. And the very beast that had been inside of his heart now came out, and you could see on the outside who he was on the inside, and he became a beast, and he was He was sentenced to live alone in this castle where no one would ever be able to find him. And after all, who could love a hideous beast? Only love could break the spell. But who would love someone who was so hideous, so terrifying, and so awful in so many ways because of the pride and arrogance that came from within him until finally a woman came along who loved him for who he was despite his appearance, despite his, his um, mannerisms and all of the things that repelled everyone else from him, and she actually loved him. And when she loved him, the spell was broken. And he who had become a beast on the outside because he had always been a beast on the inside was suddenly transformed and given new life to be the prince he was always meant to be. Have you heard that story before? I tell it better than Disney, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) How about this one? A being from another realm is sent by his father to earth to save and take care of the earthlings who have ruined everything and are now facing all of the consequences of their terrible and dark choices. This being who comes from another realm and was sent by his father has superpowers and is able to do things and eventually lays down his very life to save these wretched people who have no, um, no respect for one another and no decency about them. And he lays down his life to free them. And ultimately, if you read enough of the comic books and watch enough of the movies, he even raises again. All right, I got one more. The world is under a curse. Everyone is living in darkness, and the world is ruled by an evil ice queen. The world has become a place where it is always winter and never Christmas. And the only salvation for this world and the beings in it is that the great lion Aslan must come and lay down his own life and be executed in order to break the spell 
and bring about a world in which we can once again live and experience and enjoy life. And Aslan the great lion has to taste death and finally rise again to victoriously set the world free to experience the life that they had always been made to experience. Maybe some of you have heard that one. I could go on and on. But suffice it to say that the story, the big story to which we all relate, what I call the meta story of humanity, is a story in which there is brokenness to those who were created for life. And that brokenness cannot be fixed by those who are broken. And there must be one and only one who is able to come and pay the price in order to set them free from the curse. And so we make movies about it. We write books about it. We make up fairy tales about it. We tell children's stories about it. And over and over and over again, the one story that relates to us more than anything is told. And when it comes to the end of the story and the lights come up in the movie theater we have seen this story before somewhere different characters different details different settings but there's something in our heart that just leaps with joy when in the end the one and only one who can save comes and saves those who desperately need to be saved And it always seems to resonate with our hearts because throughout the ages, people have been living in a world where it is always winter and never Christmas. Mankind is broken and living under a curse. Death, it it comes to all eventually and every time that we lose a loved one, every time that we attend a memorial service, every time we hear about another person who has passed away, we're reminded that there's something terribly, terribly wrong. Man's inhumanity to man is constantly on display. It doesn't matter where you go or, or what you're watching. There's wars and Violent crimes and street gangs and uh, child abuse and political corruption and, and the rich and powerful dominating and taking advantage of the weak and poor and broken. There are broken families. There are people living in fear and anxiety. There is doubt. There is prejudice. There is bigotry. There is arrogance and pride and the list goes on and on and on and on and this began a very long time ago i'm not going to ask you to turn there but if you were to open your bibles to page one you would see the story beginning like this in the beginning God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. There has always been God. And God who is good, God who is holy, God who is righteous, God who is just, God who is love, creates by the, by the very word of his mouth the entire universe and everything that is within it. And in this creation, as we see in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, he makes it so that it is 
good. And at the end of every day, he pronounces over his creation, it is good, until the sixth day in which he creates mankind in his own image to have dominion over all of the rest of creation and so that man can have a relationship with him of love. And he creates man in his own image and he says, now that is very, very good. And then you turn the page And in chapter three, what was good suddenly becomes bad because there is an evil tempter with a piece of fruit that says, here, dearie, try the fruit. You'll love it. And appeals to that arrogance and that baseness and mankind says, yes, I want to be my own God. Turns away from the God who created him and says, I want to be my own God. I'll take things under my own care. I will be responsible. I'll make my own choices. I will use my free will to serve myself. And as a result, there's a curse. Not a curse because God, who is angry, sits up there and points a finger and shoots a lightning bolt and says, all right, you're in trouble now. But because God, who is loving and good, had always told them that if you will just live in harmony with me, you will live in joy. But if you will not, you will set your own curse. And they begin to live under this curse as you turn the page to chapter four. Don't worry, I won't do this for every page. As you turn the page to chapter four, you see man's weak attempt at worship and it goes wrong. And God rejects the worship of one. And that leads to jealousy and envy and strife and anger and hatred between even brothers. And we see murder taking place in chapter four. And the rest of the Old Testament unfolds the same way. A continuous cycle of God's goodness and kindness, followed by man's rebellion, followed by uh, the, the consequences of man's rebellion, God's judgment, followed by man's repentance, followed by God's goodness and kindness, followed by man's rebellion, followed by God's judgment, followed by man's repentance, followed by God's kindness, and the story repeats. And every page you turn, you see this same story again and again and again. Somehow, no matter how good God is, no matter how kind God is, no matter how much he provides for us, we always want to be our own gods and we turn things on ourselves and we decide we're gonna live for ourselves and there are always consequences to that. And when those consequences come, we finally bow the knee and bend our hearts and say, oh God, I'm so sorry, please relent. And God relents and blesses again. And we watch them in the nation of Israel go through this again and again and again and again as we read the Old Testament. And if you're like me, you watch this happen and you go, what a bunch of idiots. When are they going to learn? And then you accidentally walk past a mirror and you go, oh, another idiot. (laughs) Seems to be the same pattern that I repeat in my life again and again and again and again. And that's the entire Old Testament story. But guess what happens at the beginning of the New Testament? Christmas comes. It has always been winter and never Christmas, but at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew tells us a story and he says, hey, guess what? Christmas came. 
The Gospels describe how God intervenes in our brokenness. The Gospels describe how God sends his only son to pay the price for our sins and suffer judgment and wrath and death on our behalf only to rise on the third day and give us new life in him. And that is the story that is now commonly referred to as the gospel or, or uh, good news. The word gospel simply means the good news. Raise your hand if you could use some good news right now. We, I think we as individuals and we as a culture, as a society, are starving for good news. Because if you um, read the newspapers, then you're old. But, but if, you, <laughs> if you scroll through your screens, turn on the TV, and watch what's going on in the world today, um, what you're going to find is that there is a whole lot of bad news. I wish I had a dollar for every person who's told me, I've just stopped watching the news, I just can't take it. Bad news. Man's sinfulness in a broken world. It's on full display as we watch the news. And you don't need me to to talk you through a long list of examples of this because you live in the same broken world that I live in, right? It seems all kind of hopeless at times. And that's why we're going to be embarking upon this series of messages that takes a deep dive into what the Bible calls the good news or the gospel. And we're going to use the New Testament book of Romans as our guide. Now, as I think I tried to illustrate explaining the Old Testament story in just a few minutes, the entire Bible tells us the story of the gospel, the good news, right? But I love the book of Romans for this, that Paul, when he gives us the book of Romans, he unveils this story of the brokenness of the world and God's solution to that in a way that is both highly complete and highly understandable. So it's the most theological of the books in the Bible, I would say. There's a ton of doctrine that we get out of the book of Romans. Now, I will not be going through the entire book of Romans. The reason for this is because that's, um, I have multiple commentary sets on the book of Romans. And um, if you look at, say, the commentary set on Romans by Donald Gray Barnhouse, it's, I think, five or six um, books, and it's about this wide on my shelf. If you, if you were to look at uh, Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans, you need a crane to bring it into your office. If you were to go to Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on the book of Romans, it literally takes up an entire shelf or two on a full-size bookcase, just a commentary on the book of Romans. And so I'm not going to take the time to teach us verse by verse, thought by thought, premise by premise through the entire book of Romans, although here's a cheap plug, our men's Bible study is doing that. And we just decided to start doing that, and we started that this past Saturday. And those of you uh, women who wish you could be there, um, start your own Bible study. That's the deal. (laughs) 
So we're going to be going in-depth, men, through the book of Romans on Saturday. And here, we're not going through the book of Romans, per se. We're going through the gospel as it is presented in the book of Romans. And I know you guys who know me know that'll still take plenty of time, okay? So that's what we're going to do. And I will warn you, it is going to be a bumpy road. We are going to read truths in the book of Romans that are hard to swallow. There are going to be ideas and concepts and clear statements that we come across in the book of Romans that are going to be offensive to our sensibilities as 21st century Western Christians. There are going to be things that are said in the book of Romans that we are going to not want to be confronted with and not want to think about. And sometimes you're going to be confronted with things that are going to be convicting to you as an individual. And you know what? You might actually have to live differently because you got exposed to the book of Romans. Some of what we study is going to be controversial. And I'm just going to own that. I'm just going to tell you that right up front. I am very thankful that I don't decide what I'm going to preach, but instead let the Bible decide what, he wants to, what God wants to say to us. And we're going to stick to the text. But some of what's in the book of Romans is controversial. It may even seem offensive. Some of it is really bad news. There might be some Sunday mornings in the next several weeks when you come to church and leave in a grumpy mood. You will be like, man, I come to church to get uplifted and I come in there and he just tells me all this stuff and dumps it on my head. To which I just say, keep coming back. There's bad news that precedes the good news. And we have to deal with the bad news before we get to the good news. But I'll just give you a spoiler. The good news prevails. The whole story of Romans is about love and grace. And some of it is a bit hard to understand. But don't worry, we're going to slow down in those parts. We're going to dig deeper. We're going to ask the hard questions. We're going to walk through some of that stuff. And in those times where there's um, things that the scripture tells us in Romans that uh, has multiple possible correct interpretations that different scholars disagree upon, we're going to admit that and we're going to look at those different options and consider what God may be saying to us as we approach the word of God in humility. But in the end, we're going to see that the gospel is very, very good news. So we're actually there. Open your Bibles to Romans. Now, you're going to want to go ahead and just put one of those ribbons in your Bible in Romans because we're going to be there for a while. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 1 today. And again, all of this is by way of introduction to the series. If you're a Bible lover like I am, you're going to be disappointed that we didn't dig deeper into this stuff and really tear these verses apart. Trust me, we are going to get there. Today's introduction. And we're going to start this introduction, again, not a study of the whole book of Romans, but a study of the gospel as it is presented in the book of Romans. So we're going to begin in verse 15 of chapter 1, as Paul writes this. So for my part, Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Now, if you don't know this, Paul, the apostle, has been on several missionary journeys by the time he writes this. He took one big missionary journey going from um, Antioch and going eastward, excuse me, westward from there. And he has brought the gospel to various places. And there are churches that have popped up all over the place because of his first missionary journey. On his second missionary journey, he goes back and visits some of those places and stops at other places and brings the gospel to other places. But he never makes it anywhere near as far as Italy. Never makes it anywhere near as far as Rome. He says that he has a dream to go to Rome and preach the gospel, and he even has a dream to go as far as Spain and preach the gospel, but the Lord never seemed to allow him to do that. Even by his third missionary journey, he never got there. It wasn't until he was arrested in Jerusalem, chained up, and taken as a prisoner that he finally made it to Rome. And when he was there, he was there as a, as a prisoner under house arrest and did not get to go around throughout Rome preaching the gospel. So he's saying to them here, as he writes in about, we think, 58 AD, probably from Corinth, he's writing to Rome and he says, listen, I long to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So, so the book of Romans, one of Paul's many letters in the New Testament, is different than almost every other letter that Paul writes because although it is a letter, it is not a familiar letter. It is not written to people he has met. It is not written to people that he knows. It is not written on a personal level. It is written more like a treatise or as a theological statement. So this is Paul's great theological treatise, the book of Romans. The others you would call letters. This one, while it is technically a letter, you would say it's a book. Paul wrote a book about what the gospel is. And so he says, I long to come to you and preach the gospel. And he begins the book of Romans that way. But knowing that he may not ever get to them to preach the gospel, Romans becomes his sermon of the gospel. He's going to preach the gospel through this book that he is writing. Now, today's message really just an introduction to the topic. We're going to be covering a lot more of this in the weeks ahead, so don't worry about the fact that I'm not taking my time with this. But let's move on to verse 16. He says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed, Paul says, of the gospel, and then he explains why. I'm not ashamed, he says, of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why do I make such a big deal out of that? Because many, many Christians are ashamed of the gospel. There there are many of us who name the name of Christ, genuine Christ followers, who are thankful for the gospel. We have accepted the gospel. Our lives are being changed by the gospel. But the last thing we're probably gonna get caught doing is sharing the gospel with those who don't already agree with it because it is awkward and... um, embarrassing. And after all, in our culture, people don't like to talk about religion. 
People certainly don't like to feel judged. And so it's awkward, it's uncomfortable. And it can come across as very offensive. As I talk to people about the gospel, whether they're people I've known for a long time or people I've just met, when I talk to them about the gospel, there's always this very tough part at the beginning where you begin to talk about the fact that we have a problem. We are broken and separated from God because of our sin. And man, our culture has just, just washed that idea away and said, I will not listen to that. You're not going to tell me that anything I do is wrong. You're not going to tell me that I have anything to be ashamed of. You're not going to tell me that there's anything in my life that needs to change. After all, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. So if you want to hold on to that idea, that's fine. But telling others that somehow there's a brokenness in them seems incredibly unloving. And so most of us simply will not do it. So we talk about being ashamed of the gospel, but I think if we're honest, I think a lot of Christians are not so much ashamed of the gospel itself, the good news, as we are ashamed of ourselves and our fellow Christians who maybe have a reputation for not living out what we say we believe, and that keeps us quiet. And so be that as it may, we need to remember that even though we all have a testimony. This is so important for us to hear. The Lord tells us as Christians that we have a story to tell. Don't ever forget this. You don't have to be a theological genius. You don't have to have a degree from a a theological seminary. You don't have to know where all of the passages are and be able to interpret them in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic in order to share the gospel. You know why? Because the Bible tells us that if Christ has come into our lives, we are new creations. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so you, Christian, have a story to tell. And the people, the, the greatest impact in my life in terms of sharing the gospel has not, begin, has not been because God has given me a gift for preaching and an opportunity and a platform to do it. It's been because people who watched my life before I knew Christ got to watch my life after I know Christ. And there's no other way to explain it except to say that God changes lives. You have a story to tell. And so never back away. Never think that you can't share because you don't know what to say. Tell them what Jesus is doing in your life. It's probably the most powerful thing you could say. But as much as we all have our own story to tell, and as much as God wants to use your story and mine in the lives of other people, one of the things we have to keep in mind is the gospel is not your story. The gospel is not primarily about you. The gospel is about God. So, so keep this in mind, those of us who feel a little bit ashamed to share the gospel because we're worried about sort of how it looks when our lives don't quite line up. Listen, it is not your moral perfection that brings salvation to others. It is not your eloquent presentation or your intellectual grasp of the theological truth that brings people to salvation. And it certainly isn't your flawless life of practical holiness that will pierce the heart of someone who's lost in sin and help them come to know Christ. 
In Romans chapter seven, Paul goes to great length to expose himself to us and say, listen, there's actually a lot in my life that I'm still ashamed of. And he's the great apostle Paul who's writing the book of Romans. And he says, there's still some stuff in my life that is so fleshly, that is so tainted, that is so broken. He says, the things I wish to do, I do not do. And I do not do the things that I wish to do. He goes on and on about it. And yet, it doesn't keep him from preaching the gospel. Because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And when it says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, sorry, the Bible teacher in me can't pass this up. When it says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, don't get caught up in that and go, oh, is this some specialized religion for just Jewish people and Greek people? No, to the Jewish mindset, there were two categories of people. There are Jews and there are non-Jews. At this time, they're called Greeks. So a Greek is not somebody who's from Greece. A, Greece is so, a, a Greek is somebody who's not a Jew, Right, And so, God, so Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who will believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, to everybody. Is there anyone who is not eligible for the gospel? Is there anybody who God says, I don't care enough about you to want to see you saved? No, the scripture says that he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to a saving knowledge of God. So let's be clear. This is not a selective group of people. This is not a special group of people who come from the right lineage, have the right skin color, speak the right language, have the right culture. He says the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who will believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and that means everybody. And look at verse 17. For in it, the gospel... For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. It is God's righteousness that is revealed in the gospel. The fact that you're still in progress is not a hindrance to that. And even though we hear all the time people saying, well, I can't believe in this God because after all, his followers are so messed up. We should just embrace that. Guys, that is a fact. Raise your hand if you're not messed up. Oh, good. Oh, some of you, raise your hand proving you're messed up. <laughs> See, we're all messed up. None of us has arrived. There is not an arrival point where you have some sort of moral perfection and sinlessness. And so it is a testimony to the power of the gospel that we're hypocritical. It's not that we should embrace hypocrisy and that we should welcome it in our lives, but the very fact that God is still working on broken people is a testimony to the power of the gospel and not in the other way. And so it's God's righteousness that's revealed in the gospel. It's all about him. And our, point, our part basically boils down to actually believing that God is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he'll do. And that is such a foreign concept to so many people. In almost every culture, people have been taught to believe 
that the road to heaven or enlightenment or nirvana or eternal life or whatever it is that their religious system calls it, they have been taught to believe that that road comes through good works and religious activities. And it it doesn't seem to matter where you go in the world or what religion you dig into, you're gonna hear them talk about, I've gotta impress God by doing good works and religious activities. But my friends, that religious life is like a hamster wheel where you keep running and running and running and running and you never get anywhere. That's why the good news begins with bad news. You and I will never be good enough to measure up. We're gonna see this in the book of Romans. If our salvation depends on us, we would have no hope. And we're gonna see that in detail in the next several weeks. Let me begin to wrap this up. 500 years ago, there was a Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a monk. He was a priest. He had dedicated his whole life to his religious convictions, and he was doing everything he could to follow God. But because of the culture in which the church existed and the religious, um, shall we say, temperature or, or culture of the church in those days, what he was taught is the same that many of us have been taught at various points in our lives. And that is that somehow we have got to work our way in to God's goodwill, to God's good graces, to God's kindness, to God's love. And we've got to work our way into that. And in his religious system, as a Catholic monk at that time, he was told that God will absolve you of your sins if you go through the Catholic sacraments that will bring that absolution from your sin. And one of the things you have to do is constantly confess. And if you should happen to die with unconfessed sin, you might be in very, very serious trouble with God. So you have to confess your sin to a priest and that priest will give you penance to do or some level of punishment that feels very religious so that you can somehow improve God and earn your way back. And Martin Luther lived with the knowledge that he was broken, that he was sinful, that he kept stepping in the same holes again and again and again. Not something any of us could possibly relate to. But that's what he was dealing with. And he had this priest who was his um, mentor, and that the priest's name was Father Stoppitz. And, and Luther would wake up in the middle of the night suddenly aware of a sin that he had forgotten to confess and he would literally put on a robe and run down the hall and bang on the door of Father Stoppitz at two in the morning and say, Father Stoppitz, Father Stoppitz, you've got to hear my confession. I just thought of another sin and as he was confessing, he would go, oh no, I've just thought of another one. And it would go on and on and on until Stoppitz finally said, stop it. <laughs> Enough of this already. I can't deal with this. So he gives an assignment to Martin Luther. He says, I want you to teach in the seminary at Wittenberg, Germany. I want you to teach on the book of Mark and then on the book of Romans. And as Martin Luther, this this, um, struggling priest, digs into the book of Romans, he's reading chapter uh, chapter one of Romans and he comes across verse 17 that we just read. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And he says, 
I missed the whole point. It is not by my works that I impress God. It is not a matter of my moral goodness. It is not a matter of me not making mistakes. It is a matter of faith. It is a matter of believing that God is who he says he is. That he will do what he said he will do. That his price that he paid on the cross was sufficient and that I don't need to add anything to it. That I don't come to Christ by changing my life, but that my life changes when I come to Christ. It happens by faith and not by works. And it's for all those who believe. And the, the Greek word for believe is a word that means to put your whole weight upon. So what that means is all of you right now are believing in your chairs. That's the idea. I can stand here, look at these chairs and go, I, I believe they'll hold me. But I'm not believing in the biblical sense until I actually go and sit in the chair and make sure it will hold me. A better way perhaps to describe this is let's suppose that there was a a bridge that stretched across the Grand Canyon. It was one of those rickety rope bridges and you stood on this side and said, wow, what a wonderful bridge. What an incredible marvel. I'm so impressed with the bridge. I've learned everything I can learn about the bridge. I know all about the bridge, but I'm staying here. That's a lack of belief. So the scripture says when we put our actual weight upon that which we say we believe, now we actually believe. So here we go. This gospel that Paul writes in Romans begins with some very bad news. It's winter. But that bad news leads to some very good news. Christmas is here. So I'm inviting you on a journey with me through Paul's presentation of the good news as we find it in the book of Romans. It's gonna be a wild ride, but I promise it is going to take us to a wonderful place where it is never winter and always Christmas. Now, does that sound a little better? So join us every Sunday morning, for the next freaking weeks. weeks. <laughs> and let me make a suggestion. Bring a friend who could use some good news. Let me invite you to stand and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we stand before you as people who have no right to stand before you were it not for your amazing grace and your your work in our lives. We stand here as pictures of your grace, not just that once worked upon us, but that is working upon us right now. And God, I pray for every single one of us that we would turn our eyes to you, that it would not be the bad news that distracts us so much that we're discouraged, depressed, and turned away from you, but that instead, because of the world in which we live, we would be so desperate for your grace that we would run to you with our arms outstretched. And Father, I just thank you that you have not left us broken, but you cared enough to send your very son to pay the price for our sin and make us new. And we give you all the thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen.